listening to The Jim Laird Show on Body IO FM, where health and performance collide with your host, Jim Laird. Hello and welcome to another edition of Body IO. I am your host, Jim Laird, The Jim Laird Show. And today I have on the line uh, Dean Somerset, who's actually from, uh, he lives in my hometown of Edmonton, Alberta, actually Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta, Canada, but most people don't know where that is and most people don't even know where Edmonton is. So Dean and I will, will, will basically clarify starting off that a toboggan is something you actually slide down a hill on, it's not something you wear on your head. Something you wear on your head is a toque. Okay, for all you Americans out there, something you slide down a hill on that's made of wood or aluminum is a toboggan. So as you guys know that you've listened to the show, one of my main uh, goals is to have people on the show. um, And there might be some background noise. We've got a class that just finished here. So pardon the the background noise, but we actually do train people here. Um, One of the reasons I have Dean on is because Dean um, trains people. And, and I've actually worked with one of his distance clients that he was uh, nice enough to send to me. Uh, so I've worked with Dean. I've used some of Dean's material on some blog posts that I've done. Um, he does a great job making very complicated things simple. And um, that's one of the things I want to do is I want to put information out there for you guys so you can become better coaches from people that actually coach people. I mean, that is so critical. So, uh, Dean, how are you doing today? And uh, tell us a little bit about what you do and, and uh, how you got into it. Well, first, thanks for having me on, Jim. It's always awesome to be able to talk with like-minded coaches about just talking shop kind of concepts. And I've been watching what you've been doing over the distance element of things quite a bit. And it's awesome to be able to see that you're integrating a lot of really high concepts coaching consideration type developmental things in uh, group settings, but also just in a large scale setting. So it's been great to be able to see that going on. Like you said, I'm from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, which is kind of halfway between the U.S.-Canada border and the Arctic Circle. It gets down to about minus 40 on a regular basis in the winters, and winter's coming quick. So I'm very happy the fact that today, for anybody who knows Celsius, it's about 18 degrees here today. And in November, for that to actually happen, it never happens in Edmonton. So I'm extremely happy for that today. Um, In terms of training clients, I train a lot of medical management and post-rehab clients. Most of my clients come from medical referrals. Uh, Doctors, physical therapists, chiropractors, they all send me their patients to get them into a gym-based program, proceed with what their training and what their treatment plans have been, and try to get them into that next thing on this essentially so if somebody is discharged from physiotherapy i try to take them to that next level of strength and conditioning from where they would be discharged and make sure that we don't break them and do anything that would cause them to go backwards awesome Fortunately, uh, I've got to work with it. it's a few olympic uh, one paralympic gold uh list that just happened out rio uh he had been trained then pretty much everyone in between a lot of marathon runners. Hey guys, a lot of, uh, I'm kind of trying to record a podcast. Sports, pretty much everything. It's okay. Plus, a lot of people they just want to do things like lose weight and you know sit at their desk and not have their shoulders hurt or their back hurt or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know that's that's one of the things that I've found is um, you know getting into this. You know, originally I started out with athletes, and I still train a good number of athletes, just like you have had some professional athletes and that sort of thing. But you know, most of the people we end up dealing with are just normal everyday folks. You know, and I think a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, when they get into this business, think that it's going to be, you know, all high-profile athletes, and you know, there's just not many of them out there. But you have to be able to deal with yeah. all sorts of different populations in order to to make it as a business, especially in, you know, for somebody like me, uh, who actually owns a facility. You know, I saw an interesting article um, on Mark, Mark Fisher Fitness, I believe it was, where it was like your top resources. And it's a lot like me. Like a lot of people are like, you know, what's your training background? You know, I tra- used I trained at Westside for a little while. I competed in powerlifting. You know, I, I you know, I've, I've got some influence from guys like Paul Check and Charlie Francis. You know, it's interesting. You you put like Westside Barbell as one of your influences. PRI was one of your influences. Why don't you kind of go over like your training philosophy and kind of how you've drawn because it's it's interesting because i think you have to draw from different modalities from different people 
to kind of come up with your training philosophy, a lot of people will just buy into one camp and just completely bury their head in that camp. And then they'll overlook all these other things that they could get, you know, good, high quality information from. So why don't you go a little bit into your training background and like how you came up with your training philosophy and, and, and what your root, what would be your root fundamental um, principles? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I'll steal from pretty much anyone when it comes to training programs. I'm like the Artful Dodger of fitness. Um, for that element of things, it's a matter of does it do a certain job that's going to benefit the client one way or another. So powerlifting is fantastic to use as obviously strength development, but also it can have a very powerful implementation of corrective exercise. So with a lot of elements of powerlifting, you have to think about tension, bracing, positioning, alignment. Those are all central key facets that you have to have under consideration when you do any kind of powerlifting. Because if the bar is drifting an inch forward, an inch back, or you're not lining a joint up properly, you don't make the lift. Yes. And with a lot of corrective exercise, you're doing very similar elements and things. You're trying to get the person to retract their scapula, depress it. They're trying to develop tension through their abs, through their hips, creating torque into the feet through the floor. and getting the shoulders to line up on the bench so that they can actually control motion of the humerus. A lot of powerlifting elements are very much correct to benefits for a lot of very broad-ranging issues that you'll see. Now, obviously, that's not something where it's like, okay, well, we're going to max your deadlift the day <laughs> after you just did spinal surgery, right? right? But I can still use a lot of the principles that are developed from powerlifting, like how do you develop a brace? How do you breathe? How do you work with tension? How do you work with power development? All those elements can be very powerful when it comes to post-surgical recovery, uh, pre-surgical development of you know, healthy tissues. Um, if you have somebody who's an athlete, it works great for them. If you have somebody who's the general population but they want to get stronger, obviously powerlifting is a fantastic tool for that. But then you can also look at a lot of resources out there for if somebody has a specific shoulder injury or knee injury or back injury or hip injury or they want to get faster or they want to get a bodybuilder's physique or they want to lose weight. There's obviously a million of different ways that you can train the body. To get stuck in one methodology is kind of limiting to yourself, but also limiting to the results that you can get to your clients. So I have absolutely nothing but respect for Westside, but in terms of it being beneficial for somebody who plays soccer, it's going to have a limited application. I'm not absolutely. saying that it's useless, but obviously there's a limit to it. You're going to get the person stronger. You're going to get them much more stable and much more grounded, but then you have to get them on the field and get them fast, and you have to get them to develop agility. And powerlifting training is great, but it doesn't do that. So then we have to start looking at things like the Exos Mentorship, where they actually focus on speed, power, agility in a, a much more dynamic sport-type environment. But then we can also say, okay, we got an athlete here who's got chronic neck and shoulder issues. Maybe let's look at PRI stuff so we can get them to play without having the pain related to that developmental issue. Yeah, maybe not load them up. Maybe not jamming their shoulder blades together as hard as they can was not a good strategy for that person. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? So, I mean... And on any kind of training program, there's always a cost of doing business. There's always a risk of injury. There's always a problem with the, the approach. No approach is going to apply to 100% of the population 100% of the time. So you have to pick and choose what's going to work well for the client at that point in time in their development. So if you do nothing but powerlifting training for 6 or 10 years, you're going to have the build of a powerlifter, which is fantastic, but you're also going to have a lot of the common injuries that powerlifters see or you'll at least have the predisposition to the injuries of the powerlifter seat. And if you're not looking to step onto the platform to actually do a meet, why would you just do powerlifting? Now, that's nothing against powerlifting because it's fantastic. I involve a lot of the principles when I train myself, but there has to be balance with a whole bunch of other things. You get one body, but there's a thousand ways you can train it. Absolutely. It's the same thing with a golfer. You know, If you're training to be a golfer the whole time and you're working on having a super mobile spine, there's going to be there's going to be uh, a price to pay for that. Just like you know, you had uh, Stuart McGill on your podcast, and he did an incredible job going over the Jefferson curl. He's like, mm -hmm. that might be great for for elite level gymnasts, but for your everyday person, having a super mobile spine is not going to be a long good long term strategy. So that's a a fantastic yeah. synopsis of that. You know, you've you've done a lot of seminars. I've done a lot of seminars all over the place. Is there any kind of common thing that you see? Uh, amongst populations that you're that you're seeing when you go and do these seminars or when you work with people? Well, a lot of the people that I work with are trainers. So the people that I see are kind of an anomaly because they're all in relatively good shape. They all right. take care of themselves in one way or another. Um, interestingly, we were over in Europe. We taught a seminar in Prague and we taught one in Oslo. And they have a very different sense of how their body moves, not necessarily saying better or worse, 
but we actually have a bit of a different training style in North America than they have over there. What's interesting was uh, a lot of the stuff that we use from power and strength development, we say comes from like the Eastern Bloc or like the old Russian style of lifting. They don't do any of that. Like a lot of the guys in Prague, Czech Republic, which is very much Eastern Europe, they look at the North American style of training and say, we want to be like you guys. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're looking back at them saying, we want to be like you guys. So it's always that interesting dynamic of the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, right? Yeah. But it's amazing when you go over there and you see guys that have knee injuries, shoulder injuries, back injuries, and then you go to Oslo, same thing. You go to St. Louis, you go to Seattle, you go to L.A., you go anywhere, and a lot of people have very similar outcomes. And it's not to say good or bad or ugly, but we live in a very heterogeneous population where a lot of people train in very similar manners. Now, again, that's not a bad thing, but we do a lot of the basic stuff. So we do squats, lunges, deadlifts, burpees, you know, CrossFit-type workouts. We'll do bodybuilder-style workouts, and we only get one set of shoulders, one set of knees, one set of hips. Eventually, they wear down or they break down, and it's a matter of can you take care of the joint to make it so that it performs for you, but then also recovers and heals so that you can do it again next day. Absolutely. You know, one the common thing that I've seen doing seminars all over the place is like, is just basically a non mastery of the fundamentals. You know, I just see people struggle with, with just basic things like hinging on one leg, hinging when, with the hips and, you know, people that have been exposed, you know, they'll come up to me like, I've read all your stuff or I've read all of Mike Roberts and stuff. And then you watch them lift and you're just like, whoa. Okay. You know, let's, let's, let's step back here a little bit and kind of teach you how to move. So I I see, you know, there's all this information out there, but I think there's so much information that people tend to get paralysis by analysis, or there's so much information that they forget that there's some fundamental things that they need to master. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's something that I've seen. Yeah, there definitely can be some of that. And I think part of it is that the education that we get to become trainers is very, you know, spotty at best i mean you could have somebody who took a weekend certification who barely knows anatomy and physiology compare Mm -hmm. that to somebody who's got a bachelor's degree a master's degree a phd is very fundamentally sound in the academic element of things but has rarely ever been coached on how to do something or they can't even talk or they can't even talk to a client (laughs) yes you see that a lot yeah and i mean they're great at the academic end of things they're great at the research end of things but in terms of talking to the client that's one thing but also teaching the client how to do movements is another thing entirely. Like if you talk with a lot of academics, they're very great at what they do. There's no question mm-hmm. about that. They've developed their skill set in a very remarkable way, which allows them to be what who they are and do what they do. But it's a very different skill set to be a coach, which means that you have to be able to teach people how to do things and get an outcome. And part of that is you have to have been shown how to do that in the first place. Yeah. So very few people come into any the training or coaching scenario knowing how to move perfectly in every development. So I took the SFG kettlebell certification a couple of years ago and I struggled with it for a little while until I finally clicked on how to actually do the swing. And I've been doing this for 10 years before I took that cert. So sure. we're always in a situation where we have to be able to learn and develop. And it's something that I think a lot of coaches just haven't had the experience for. Absolutely. You figure how long have most coaches been coaches? Yeah. Probably less than five years. So yeah. that's not enough time to be able to get exposure to the variety of information out there and the, the amount of coaching that's necessary to become skilled at movements and the vast breadth of movements that we can see. And plus, a lot of it comes down to who showed you how to move. Right. I mean, did they actually tell you you were doing it right or doing it wrong? Like with me, I had to actually film my deadlift for about six months to be able to coach myself on what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? What should I do differently? Because I didn't have a set of eyes in the back of my head to see what my hips were doing. And I didn't have somebody else there to coach me on how to do it either. Absolutely. A lot of coaches need to have that external feedback to be able to tell whether or not they're doing it right or not. So you went to the university of Alberta, correct? Yes, sir. And you got what kinesiology? Is that what you had? Yeah. I I actually went to U of A for one semester and played football there and then went back, back to the States. But, uh, I can't remember what year that was, but, um, U of A is a great school, but uh, how did you make the transition from academia to coaching? Like, what was that transition like for you? Um, well, as soon as I graduated, I applied for a job at a commercial gym, and I've been there ever since. Oh, nice. A, yeah, pretty pretty smooth transition. Um, but even then, like, there's always that on-the-job learning. Like, you go from yeah. studying, and then you have people in front of you who are paying you money to be there, and there's that mental shift to say, okay, well, what do I do now? You learned everything about how to write the exam and pass the test, but now – the real test in front of you, you can't screw up on it. And you got to make sure that this person's healthy and safe. 
Right. So there was definitely a lot of on-the-job moments where it's like, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. And to be honest, I still get those once in a while where I have yeah. no idea what I'm going to do with the client to produce the end result of what I think I should do. But then a lot of it is just trial and error and say, okay, well, let's try this out. Let's see what works. And we can always adjust it later, but let's at least get the ball rolling and see what happens. Absolutely. I mean, I've had tons of clients, especially early in my career, where I was like, what the heck am I going to do with this person? But, you know, a lot of times it was call the physical therapist or or call their orthopedic and be like, okay, what can't I do with this person? And then you find yep. things that they can do without pain, and then you basically go from there. And, and, and uh, let's, go, let's go into basically – let's talk a little bit about structure because I think you do such a great job of communicating this. How does structure affect your exercise selection? And you go into this in your product in great detail. And I think this is something that a lot of coaches kind of overlook. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are like, ah, you got to squat ass to grass no matter what, or everybody should be doing deadlifts. Talk a little bit about structure and how that affects your exercise selection. Well, the biggest thing to think of is that when we're taught how to do a lot of movements, we have that textbook definition that the hip should flex to X degrees, the hip should extend to X degrees, you should be able to squat to this or that or whatever, but we don't really get a chance to see that there's a, a huge variety of structural geometries and structural alignments that the body can actually have to be able to produce movements in one direction versus another or vice versa. So. In the hip alone, there's about 27 different alignment combinations and varying degrees within those combinations that can affect your overall range of motion. So when you get into a situation where you move a joint to its very end ranges, especially in the hip or in the shoulder or whatever, and you have something like bone-to-bone -bone contact or compression, you literally do not get any more range of motion out of that without something bad happening. So some people will have the joint line up so that they get that bone-to-bone -bone contact earlier in a specific range of motion than somebody else who might have a different alignment to their joints. So a classic example of a guy who can squat ass to grass probably has an antiverted acetabulum with an antiverted femoral neck and also has a shallow socket with a thin femoral neck to allow him to acquire that very deep hip flexion range of motion. Compare that to somebody who's got a thick neck, deep socket, and a more retroverted acetabulum that points backwards slightly. They may never get into the same hip flexion angle because they get bone-to-bone -bone contact 20 or 30 degrees sooner in that range of motion. But they might be very good at being able to stand up and bear weight in something like a yoke carry, or they might be great at doing hip extension-based exercises like a hip thrust or even sprinting. And you see some people when they run and they get that great big kickback of the yep. leg really pushing up behind them, and then other people look like the leg doesn't even break zero degrees. Yep. I'm in that category. I mean, I've got more of an antiverted acetabulum. I can get my knee to my chest with the other one laying flat on the ground, but I can't get past zero degrees of hip extension. And no matter what position I put myself into, I just can't get there because bone-wise, I just don't have the anatomy for it. I'm the same way. Seen, yeah, I've seen all of my x-rays, and I can look at it and say, okay, I have uh, an as anteroverted acetabulum. I have a center edge angle that's very wide, um, but I also have a very deep socket and thin femoral neck, which allows me to get a bit of range of motion in different directions. But for me, it just seems to work that way that the alignment allows me to get very deep into hip flexion with my knees about shoulder width apart. Hip extension, I don't get anywhere with it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, and, and, and you know, that's that's interesting. And, and it's it's one of those things where, you know, everybody tries to kind of put people into this, you know, same category. How with these two examples that you've given, like, what is your exercise selection going to look like for these two different people that, you know, somebody that's got super range of motion might be hypermobile. And then somebody who's got limited range of motion, like what is your exercise selection going to look like for those those two different people? Well, they can all do the same exercises. It's just that yes. you might have to adjust the range of motion of it. So take example of the person who's got the antiverted acetabulum where they can squat and have their knee come right up to their chest. Those people, I'm not going to worry too much about you know, limiting range of motion for fear of something like FAI, femoral acetabular impingement, or uh, lumbar flexion or anything like that because literally they will not run out of room before they hit the bottom of their squat. So for them, it's more a matter of, okay, can you control the weight through the entire range of motion? Yes. And some people will get to the bottom, they'll just lose tension. So, okay, instead of going right to the bottom, stop about two or three inches higher. I want you to maintain tension and then come back up. 
for the person who's got a more retroverted acetabulum, we might need to do box squats yep. or something where I give them a barrier to say, I only want you to squat to this point. If they have the body control over it, I'll just have them high squat because at any lower depth, if they start getting that lumbar rounding, now we have compression with lumbar flexion, which is a very high incident rate of disc herniation. If I work with a general population client that sits all the time, we already know they probably have some posterior pressurization anyway. So the risk just isn't there to deep squat that individual without having something go wrong. Um, for them, yeah, a box squat, a high squat. We might do deadlifts from a rack or from a couple of bumper plates raised up surface instead of going right down to the floor. Um, they can do lunges and carries until their face explodes, but they can do all sorts of different things. It's just maybe we adjust the range of motion for them. And yeah. you can see that when you watch the person do it. Like, I don't have to have their entire yes. chart with me. I can watch how they squat and say, okay, you're squatting high, but your back looks fine. Squat a little bit deeper. Okay, cool. You're there, and your back starts to round at this specific position. Stop there, and then keep that as your depth. <laughs> the other person squatting right next to them is hitting the floor. Cool. As long as their knees don't hurt, their ankles don't hurt, their hips and the back don't hurt, use what you have. And as long as you can control it, we're off to the races. Yeah, and, and that's something I've tried to tell people about assessments and things like that is, like, you can do that stuff on the fly just by looking at exercises, simple yeah. exercises like bird dogs and squats. You can literally progress and regress people on the way that they move, and you don't have to put them on the table. You know, I try to tell that to people that do group exercise stuff. I'm like, just look at the way they're squatting. You know, their feet are, you know, are are trying to rotate. Their knees are collapsing. You know, that's probably somebody who doesn't need – he needs to be squatting off a box or doesn't need to be doing super deep squats. You don't mm -hmm. need to put necessarily put them on a table or send them to a PT unless they have pain to figure that out. It's just a matter of looking at it and seeing if it looks good or not and then adjusting and finding an exercise that works for them. And it might take a couple times. Like everyone at our gym, regardless of age, does a deadlift. But somebody might be deadlifting off blocks. You know, some people might only deadlift with a kettlebell because they can control that the most. They might never, ever deadlift with a bar. But we're doing some sort of hinge with everybody that walks through this door. You know, that's just yeah. that's just the way it is. And I, I think people sometimes get a little too, too complicated with that. And uh, we had a really good question on Facebook, actually, if I can pull it up here on my phone with this fancy iPad. Oh, okay. Uh, Damon Amato asks, in Canada, physio seems to be a blanket term, and athletic trainers can legally call themselves athletic therapists. How do you go about working side-by-side -side with people who have similar skill sets and so not to step on each other's toes? And I know you've had a lot of experience, like I have, with working with physical therapists and orthopedics. You know, what, what do you, how do you approach that so that you build an ally and that you build somebody that you can refer people back and forth to? Yeah, the first part of that where he's talking about athletic therapists and athletic trainers, I honestly have no idea what the distinction difference is. But again, I'm, I'm kind of ignorant in that because I don't really care and I don't really look at it too much because that's all coming down to governance and um, board designation and stuff like that. Uh, as a trainer, that's not something that I really need to worry too much about. If somebody sends a person to me for you know, gym training or if I have somebody sitting in front of me who says, I work with this person, I want to just contact them and figure out, you know, what can I do with this person? What are you doing with them? What should I do in terms of updates with you or there, is there stuff I should avoid? And a lot of them will just be really forthright. They'll just say, you know, do these kind of exercises, don't do these, use these coaching cues, don't do these. And cool, that makes my job easier. But then it also gives me a lot of freedom to do the other stuff that I might want to involve with it as long as I follow the parameters that are laid out by that individual. At the end of the day, I'm going to defer to their expertise first because they had that client first, and they're also the ones that have the board designation and the governance behind it. So um, at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, they're the ones who has the butt on the line more than me due to the fact that they have that board designation or any other licensing or registration behind it versus a trainer. And that's not to say that I'm going to be reckless or careless or anything like that, but they're the ones who have the biggest stake in the matter, being that they have all that uh, designation behind them. Um, so I'll, de I'll defer to what they are telling me to do, and then I'll provide my feedback and we'll communicate back and forth to be able to say, okay, let's come up with a reasonable idea and reasonable plan. What should we do? And have communication versus it just be a one-sided street. That's At the great. end of the day, I've got a skill set. They have a skill set. I want to learn from them as much as I possibly can. I don't want to fight against them because what is that going to do? It'll make me look good in their eyes? No, it'll make me look like a jerk and a jackass. So I want to make sure that at the end of the day, I'm able to help whoever it is who's sitting in front of me. And the best way of doing that is communication. If yep. I communicate with the people who are also invested in that individual and work with them to find the best plan of attack, it's a win-win no matter what. 
Absolutely. What advice would you give to people that run like group classes and, and, and or like fitness classes as far as, you know, how they deal with, with large amounts of people where they can't do like a, you know, on the table type assessment? What, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, the great thing about that is that you don't have to do a very detailed assessment on everybody, especially in a group setting. But what you can do is break people up into very specific subgroups. So if you say to somebody, or if you just get a, a group of people and say, okay, I want you to stand with your knees straight and touch your toes. You know, the people who can touch their toes or get their hands to the floor, great. Guess what? You get to squat deep, you get to deadlift off the floor. The people who are stuck at their knees and higher, great. Guess what? You get to squat to a box, you get to deadlift from risers. All right, cool. You just show me you didn't have the range of motion to do full flexion, so I'm not going to give you an exercise that has full flexion in it. That's it. I mean, you can do on-the-fly assessments. You look around the room and see how people are doing things. Like when I was chatting with Stu McGill, he was saying things like, are you naturally strong or are you naturally fast? Okay, the, the strong people, we're going to put you into a speed development program. The fast people, we're going to put you in a strength development program. So that way we're not putting strength on top of strength and speed on top of speed. Yep. That way we're actually able to see people see physical adaptations to new stressors and be able to get new training developments and adaptations versus just doing the same thing all the time. You can also do the same thing with people who it's like, okay, who in here has low back pain? Okay, well, guess what? We're not going to have you do big range of motion, uncontrolled spinal flexion or extension type stuff or stuff that involves a lot of shear force on your spine. Have you had a history of lower back pain? Okay, well, we're going to get you doing dead bugs, bird dogs, front planks, side planks. We're going to get you to do loaded carries. We're going to get you to do goblet squats. We're going to get you to do single leg deadlifts, hip hinges against the wall, push-ups, pull-ups, all that kind of stuff. And people who've never had back pain before, great. You're going to do squats. You're going to do deadlifts. You're going to do lunges. We're going to do all the hip thrusts. We're going to do all the kind of other stuff. And it's not saying that you have to have everybody be on different programs, but it's a way that you can generalize and categorize yes. and have like a group A over here doing one thing, a group B over here doing another thing, working to their abilities, but still in a group setting. Like not everybody has to do the same exercise at the same time. That, that's kind of a redundant thing that you shouldn't really have to worry about like if you look on a lot of group fitness classes they'll write a workout on a whiteboard and it's like everybody goes through this workout and you're done that's a way of doing it but then you can also have uh, two columns on that whiteboard yes column a and column b you can also have column c and d if you really want to um there's a great gym in winnipeg uh fukumoto fitness uh he john fukumoto is a great guy at running group programs where he literally will delineate, I think, about 20 different options as far as what his clients are going through. And then he'll write out different workout tracks for those different programs based on where the client is. So for them, it might be an FMS score. Um, do you have a movement intolerance? Are you looking for weight loss or muscle gain? And then he'll have the program listed out like the A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, all the way across. And if you're in Team H, you know what your workout is for that day. If you're in Team B, you know what your workout is for that day. And it works symbiotically around because everyone's doing stuff in the gym. Yes. But they're just doing different stuff or they're doing altered stuff. I mean, you could have everyone do squats but they just do them differently. I mean, when I take a class through of trainers and I say, everyone show me your best body weight squat, now look around the room, how many different squats do you see? However many people are in the room, that's how many different squats you see. That's correct. Right? So to force all of those trainers who are fit and who have practiced with the movement to do the exact same setup when all 50 of them show me something different is entirely redundant. So get them doing different things. You don't have to put everyone on the same program. You don't have to put everyone on one or two variations of programs. You can put them on three, four, five, ten different variations if you want. It takes a little bit of work, but, yeah, I mean, it makes it more valuable to the client at the end of the day. Absolutely. It's not that hard to have progressions and regressions for uh, every exercise, and it's not that that difficult to have different, you know, conditioning programs. You know, we do a lot of that stuff at the gym where we've got – you know, for people that want to get in a little better shape, they can do a finisher at the end that's A, and they, or they can do, if they want to get stronger, they can do some drags and pushes. Uh, yeah. You know, giving people different options is not that difficult. It's uh, no. it's pretty it's pretty easy to do. So, and, that, and that's what we do as coaches too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and being able to adjust yeah. on the fly, I think I think one of the things that the people have as a problem is like, you know. Uh, you know, client A, you know, just had a baby and they didn't sleep all night and the client comes in, you know, they don't necessarily have to do the, that training that day. They could do an extended warm up and do some, you know, go outside and do some sled dragging and go home. 
you know, they don't necessarily have to do the training that day if they don't, they don't feel great, you know. So I think a lot of people get so caught up in what's on the paper that they overlook what that client needs on that day. And it's not that difficult to be, to be flexible. So, yeah. And well, the funny thing is that the client, the trainer wrote what was on that paper anyway. Yeah. So they came up with the program and they're like, oh, well now I have to stay with what's on the training program. No, you wrote that up. You can change it if you want. You are in complete control of whatever that program is. You can change on the fly or not. If it's a program that's coming from a top level coach or whatever, like you're still going to change that program on the fly based on who's in front of you. Sure. That's one of the things I was lucky when I was at Arizona and I worked for a guy named Brad Ornette, who's, uh, who works, uh, he has his own gym in, uh, Wisconsin now. And, um, you know, every workout was, was structured, but everything changed according to how that athlete was doing on that day. If the athlete was, you know, grinding reps out, we'd lower the weight. If they were flying up, we'd add it, you know, we would change exercises on the fly. So very early on in my career, I was able to do that. And it's really helped me in my career. Why don't we talk a little bit about your current job situation? Cause like there's so many options now, like when I first got into this business in like 1997, there wasn't that many options as far as what you could do as far as, as trainer wise. So why don't you kind of share a little bit about your current uh, employment situation and, and why it works for you so much? Well, I work in a commercial facility here in Edmonton. It's called world health. Uh, there's 10 different locations across Edmonton and also I think 12 across Calgary. Um, I work at a commercial gym because it works for me. I'm able to come in, train clients. I don't have to pay a rent. I don't have any overhead costs associated with anything. All of the accounting is done for me. All of the management is done for me. Reception is handled. I don't have to worry about paying a, a lease or a rent or anything like that. At the end of the day, I get to go home and then come do fun stuff like this. Talk to you, develop any kind of digital product I want, um, do any kind of workshops or blog writing or videos because essentially I looked into how we were setting everything up and for me to not have a conflict of interest, I just have to not do something that's currently being offered by world health, which is in-person training or in-person fitness things. So if I'm training somebody else in a facility within Edmonton, that would be a conflict of interest. They'd have a problem with that. But because I'm doing stuff like this and they don't offer any complimentary services that are anywhere near what it is, there's no conflict of interest. So it's like somebody at a gym getting mad at somebody for having a job as a bartender. You know, if they don't have a bar in their facility, why would you get mad at that person? That's their own private time and their own resources. So for me, it works out really well. I'm able to do what I want to do. I'm able to have a whole bunch of different options as far as how to develop income and how to generate my own professionalism. And they're very supportive in everything I do because they know that it leads back to them in one way or another. I've got a lot of people that have come in to train with me because they've seen something that I've written online or I've had a Skype consult with them and they've flown from like Toronto or from one guy came up from Florida just to be able to have me take him through a workout or take him through a consult. And then I've had trainers start working with us too who came in because they wanted to work near me. So that's pretty cool to be able to do. So they see that there's a big benefit to it. I'm not conflicting with them or taking business away in any way, shape or form. They love it. That's awesome. And, you know, until I get questions from young trainers you know i want to open my own gym and you know as a gym owner man it's a whole like you know you talked exactly about leasing and doing your own taxes and then having to deal with employees mm -hmm. you know to all you young trainers out there there is some great peace in knowing that the cleaning is being done and that you don't have to like buy a new vacuum and I love my gym and I love my job. I love what I do, but there are days where I wish I could go back just to being an independent contractor or an employee where I didn't have to worry about all these other things on the back end. And I can, yeah. you know, one of the mistakes I've made is, you know, I've done a lot of things online, but I haven't, you know, developed a great blog or you know, part of it is, is I can't spell better than a third grader, but, um, <laughs> you know, you got guys like yourself and Mike Robertson and Eric Cressy have done a great job building the back end of your business. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? You know, because that's really where the freedom comes from, you know, and a lot of these people that are getting into the business, they think they can just do a couple blog posts and then all of a sudden they're going to have, a you know, 50,000 people on a, an emailing list. Why don't you talk about how hard that's been to develop and, and how much uh, work you actually have to do for that? Well, I've been writing a blog since I think 2010. So it's not something that's just been an overnight success. And it actually started off as a bit of a dare from one of my clients. He was writing a blog and he was telling me about it and he's like, you know what, you should do a blog. I'll dare you to write a blog. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll look into what this actually is. 
So I started writing a blog, sucked at it, and got progressively less sucky and progressively got to a stage where I was okay and then probably good. And now I'm doing a little bit better. And it's not something that happened overnight. I think I put up about 800 blog posts in the last six years. So when you look at that, it's something where I had to put out consistent effort. Where a lot of people wind up failing with a blog is within 10 posts. I mean, I have a, a cousin who just put out her second blog post in like three months because she started up her own blog. And it's like, you know, that's going to be a little bit tough if you only put out two blog posts in like six months. It's going to be a little bit difficult for you to be able to generate any kind of traction or be able to get any kind of, you know, comfort with yourself writing. And that's, I think, something that a lot of people need to understand is that writing is a skill as much as it is a talent. There are people who are naturally strong, but then there's also people who naturally have to squat their face off to be able to get strong. And if you want to get better at anything, you have to do more of it. I mean, how many free throws do you think an NBA player has shot in their lifetime? When they start getting around 80 or 90% success, do you think they take days off from shooting? No, they're out there every single day honing their craft, sharpening their tool, making sure they're able to get that ball in the hoop whenever they need to. So in yep. terms of writing and putting out content, it's something where you're constantly working to try to find your voice, trying to figure out what works with your audience, and trying to figure out what resonates with people. And a lot of people get stuck at around like blog two to 10 and then they just give up. And I'm not going to sit around and say, you know, everyone has to write. There's a lot of different ways that you can make an impact in the fitness industry. You could do YouTube videos, you could do writing, you could do social media, you could write a book, you could do uh, podcasts like this. There's a lot of different ways that you can communicate with people around you to either share information or share ideas or funny stories or anything like that that's going to generate income. Absolutely. And, and, and that's so true. It's like, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, how do I get in the business? How do I get in the business? Well, the first four years of my career were for free. <laughs> you know, and, and people don't understand that. And, and when I when I moved here to Lexington, I trained like five or six people for free to get exposure so I could get more clients. And, and people, a lot of the people that are coming out of school now or they get a certification, they think they're just going to jump into this business and all of a sudden have a ton of clients and you'll be able to coach people. It takes a long time to develop the people skills in order to combine the coaching with being able to read people and talk to people. And then if you're going to get into the Internet stuff, I mean, it takes a long time to build credibility and to build a following. And, and, and a lot of this stuff might not work for you. You just it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you want to get really good, it's just going to take a lot of hard work. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And unfortunately today, I think, especially with the younger generation, they just don't want to do that, that work. You'd be surprised. I think that the older generation's in this uh, somewhat similar boat too. Like people look for the payoff. And if somebody's looking at starting a blog and they put in 10 hours worth of work on it and they see like three people of viewed that page no matter who you are or what generation you're in you're not going to want to keep doing it yeah and a lot of people are going to get to that stage whether they're 30 40 20 anything like that it's going to be a little bit of a turnoff when you don't see that instant gratification we all kind of feature into that that's just human yeah. psychology um the thing that a lot of people also need to realize is that you know this isn't something that's going to happen overnight like i said i've been writing since in 2010 and it took me two years before i had my first article published on t nation and that was only because I'd written about 120, 130 blog posts to get to that point where my writing became good enough to submit something to them to be able to say, okay, well, here's a piece. And then it took another three years before Men's Health contacted me to be able to write even just a, a, a short quote for them for an article that they were already writing. And then two years more for that to be able to write an actual article for Men's Health. So it's not something where it's like everything comes at you at once because you wrote your first blog post and it amazed everybody to the point where they think that you're the next like J.D. Salinger or something like that. It's not going to happen. Like If you're a very gifted writer, fantastic. You're a very gifted writer. You're one of the LeBron Jameses of the world who can actually be excellent at what they do and not have to you know, curse and push as hard as the average person. But at the same time, he still has to put his work in. You still have to put your work in. Like I can look at everybody who I know who's a great writer who has a really strong presence and their work ethic is off the charts. Yes. So it's something where they devote a lot of time and energy into doing their craft. It's not something where it's just, I'll oh, roll out of bed, write a blog post, and then go about my day. It's you know They put time and energy into that kind of stuff because they know that if they put the time and energy into it, it's going to pay off. Yep. But you have to plant the seeds and wait and wait and wait before you can actually harvest. So planting the seed is right in that blog post. 
Absolutely. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your product that you and Tony have done? It's basically a uh, filming of your, of your seminar. Give us a brief overview of that and uh, just talk about the benefit for coaches and trainers and even for people that just want to move better. Well, this was a continuing education resource workshop that we put on. Uh, it was actually filmed in Oslo, Norway. Uh, before that, Tony and I had taught in Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago, Edmonton, Boston, um, St. Louis, a couple other places. So we'd had a chance to be, really refine down what we were talking about and ex, uh, ev uh, evolve and evaluate and adjust it to make sure it was the best experience we could possibly provide. And I think we really delivered a high level of service and information with this. So uh, it's called the Complete Shoulder and Hip Blueprint, and it's exactly what the title says. It's all about shoulders and hips. So Tony Gentslecor worked at Cressy Sport Performance under Eric Cressy and Pete Dupuy, and he was one of the co-founders. And I can't think of anybody who's had more experience with more shoulder-related clients than somebody who specialized in baseball players. You think about the number of overhead athletes that he's seen in his day as well as the complex issues as far as like post-surgical, post-injury, thoracic outlet, all that kind of stuff, how they train their clients, how they work with not just the baseball guys, but the average Joe Meathead clients who want to just get stronger and fitter and push more weight around and look better. What's the training difference between those two? And it's remarkably different. So like we were talking earlier about using West Side to train a soccer player, you, know, you can for a certain point, but then you got to switch it up. So using an, uh, a general bodybuilding program for a baseball player it doesn't work that well after a certain point. Same as doing a baseball training program for somebody who's general pot. Absolutely. So on the, on the day two of the workshop, I take over with hips, and we look at a lot of like individual structural variations, how you can tune a person's uh, positioning to what their individual anatomical considerations are, how you can get people to deadlift and squat in a relatively decent manner without having them have pain or problems and increasing their ability to perform. And a lot of the time it might mean, yeah, you don't deadlift off the floor. You deadlift off of risers. You squat maybe to a box instead of all the way to the floor. But you play with what the person's individual anatomy gives you, and you make them give you the most benefit that they possibly can. Yeah, and a lot of times people don't realize is if you get somebody strong in a, in a position that they're good at, it might open other things up. You know, I've seen yeah. people, you know, all the time that – can't hinge on one leg and all of a sudden they do some box squats for a couple of weeks and then all of a sudden they come in one day and bam you're doing a warm-up and you ask them to hinge and all of a sudden they've got it you know so a lot yeah. of times if you strengthen what's good the body kind of figures out other things too and instead of focusing on what's bad you know reinforce what's good and a lot of times the brain figure think figures things out on its own yeah absolutely so it's a video workshop series. There's 11 hours of content in this. Uh, it's available for continuing education credits for the NSCA. I think it's a resource that's going to become an instant classic, and a lot of trainers are already picking this up. Um, I think we've already sold 500 copies so far in less than a week. So nice. it's something that's proliferating the industry, and I'm really happy with how it's turned out, and I think a lot of people are very happy with the content as well. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to – there will be a link uh, to the product in the in the show notes. Now we're going to go off the rails a little bit because that's what Canadians do. Um, <laughs> just to give you guys an idea of, you know, I grew up in the Edmonton area. I was originally born in, in Ontario, in Red Lake, Ontario, which is the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's uh, east of Winnipeg. And probably half the people don't even know what we're talking about. Then I lived in Winnipeg till I was about the third grade. And then I moved to Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan, just outside Edmonton. And if you want to get a good idea of what Dean and I have dealt with, uh, you just watch a show called Ice Road Truckers. And <laughs> you will basically see uh, the fun and excitement of only having several hours a day of sunlight in the uh, in the winter. And if you go more north, uh, you know, go up to Peace River and that, and you go up to like Yellowknife, you don't get really any sun. And then in the summertime, the sun never goes down. So it's, it, and then the mosquitoes and all that fun stuff. But um, it's a very interesting place to grow up. And I, I miss, I miss, uh, especially the people in Canada. I think there's something about cold weather that, that just does something to you um, character wise. And, um, so that kind of gives you an idea where where we're coming from, and so so Dean, how are the how you know I don't get to watch hockey very much anymore. It's very sad. Well, part of the reason is the commentating down here in the states is just terrible. I mean, you know, you, there's no Don Cherry, there's no, you know, there's no, you know, we just don't have the the commentators. You should, 
You should be happy there's no Don Cherry down there. Well, I like, I like Don Cherry. <laughs> but, I mean, he does, he just comes on, does his coach's corner. But, I like, the regular hockey commentating isn't what we'd call uh, highly upstanding uh, down here. But yeah. how, how, are the, how are the Oilers looking this year? I mean, you know, I grew up in the Gretzky era, Messier, Grant Fuhrer. I mean, are they finally starting to, 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 to do something? Um, well, they were top of the league for a couple of weeks this year. Oh. So they, they they had a really strong start, but they just lost three in a row. So, you know, it might be one of those, they're, what's old is new again, right? But, uh, yeah, we're, we're always hopeful. They got this brand new half a billion dollar arena. So we got to hope that they can actually do something in it. Otherwise, it's going to be another debacle. But, yeah, there's always hope. Yes, there's always hope. And, and I tell you what, I, you know, like like the rest of the world loves soccer, you know, Canada and hockey and, and, and you know, Dean, I'm sorry that you didn't play hockey uh, growing up. <laughs> I'm surprised they allow you to stay in the country. But, yeah, um, I'm, on, uh, I'm on thin ice, so to speak. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> well, there, there's something about the Canadians and hockey that's just, you know, when we were growing up, when I was growing up, and there was like Canada Cups and World World Junior and stuff, and they'd shut school down for it. I mean, it's just pretty, yeah. it's pretty insane. It's kind of like Alabama Auburn football, just kind of yeah. on that on that level. But I'm sure people don't want to hear us babble about Canadianisms. But uh, Dean, I really appreciate you being on the show. I know you've been super busy this week with the with the product coming out, and I'm sure this is going to come out a week or two from now. So. Um, but, you know, check his product out. Check his blog out. He's got a lot of really good practical information. A lot of his videos are super simple, like some of the squat tests and stuff are really easy to figure out how you can squat better. It's super simple stuff. He's taking really complicated uh, things and making it really simple. And uh, he's got a lot of experience. Him and Tony have worked with, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people, and they've done seminars all over the place. So, I'm I'm glad to have you on, and I'm glad to put this information out there so people can basically, you know, get better and improve themselves. My absolute pleasure for being here, man. Thank you very much for being willing to have me on and sharing information like this. Oh, no problem, man. Have a have a great day. You've been listening to the Jim Laird Show with your host Jim Laird. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. Don't miss the next episode of The Jim Laird Show, when he'll probably say something inappropriate but unexpectedly insightful.